is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 93 is Jungian analyst, author, and psychiatrist, Dr. David Rosen in Eugene, Oregon. After graduating from the University of California, Berkeley, with a degree in psychological biological sciences, he went on to attend medical school at the University of Missouri, where he received his MD. He then returned to California to intern at San Francisco General Hospital and complete a psychiatric residency at the Langley Porter Institute at the University of California Medical Center, where he was later appointed first lecturer and assistant professor of psychiatry. He began his analytic training at the C.G. Jung Institute of San Francisco, but was recruited by well-known psychiatrist George Engel at the University of Rochester Medical Center. He then spent the next four years as an associate professor of psychiatry and medicine and resumed his analytic training with the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, earning a diploma in analytical psychology in Santa Fe, New Mexico in 1992. Dr. Rosen spent the next 25 years at Texas A&M University as the first Macmillan Professor of Analytical Psychology the only American full professorship in Jungian psychology, and as professor of psychiatry and behavioral science, and professor of humanities and medicine. He also served as editor of the Fay Lecture book series in analytical psychology, from its inception in 1991 until 2017. Concurrently, he served on the faculty of the Texas Region Jungian Training Seminar, then as a senior training analyst for the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, and later joined the faculty of the New Orleans Region Training Seminar. Currently, he is a member of the Pacific Northwest Society of Jungian Analysts and is an affiliate professor of psychiatry at Oregon Health and Science University. He is the author of over 100 publications, including more than 20 books, on psychiatry and psychology, poems and haiku, novella and personal stories, memoirs, children's books, a coloring book, and a cookbook. His research on survivors of suicide attempts at the Golden Gate Bridge is included in his book Transforming Depression, Healing the Soul Through Creativity. Please see our blog post on Dr. Rosen's concept of egocide for an excerpt from the book. His other popular titles include The Tao of Jung, The Tao of Elvis, and his latest, Soul to Soul, Aphorisms for Life. Wiffenstock Publishers have provided our listeners with the coupon code ROSEN for 40% off any of their 22 titles by Dr. Rosen. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Saturday, September 25th, 2021, through the magic of Skype. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Rosen. You're welcome. Among other things, you are professionally, and professionally, this certainly isn't all of you, a physician, a psychiatrist, an academic, a professor, a researcher, or me-searcher, as you like to say, as all research is really me-search, a Jungian analyst, an author, an editor, a poet, a playwright, 
and a stand-up comedian. Am I leaving anything out? I'm a dedicated husband to my lovely wife, Lenara, who's a gardener. We have beautiful gardens because of her. Oh, lovely. Yeah, I have not been spending much time outdoors these days, and I've been thinking... Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about gardens because I was reading your book, The Alchemy of Cooking. And yeah, and um, all the vegetables that you use and the avocados and uh, was really inspiring me. And the licorice, we'll get to the licorice later. So the psychologist, Dr. Nathan Mascaro, described you Mm -hmm. as a blue-eyed, brown-haired, perennially tanned Jewish Buddhist psychiatrist. I'm going to say that again. (laughs) I'm going to say that again. I'm going to say that again. The psychologist, Dr. Nathan Mascaro, described you as a blue-eyed, brown-haired, perennially tanned Jewish Buddhist psychiatrist and passionate Elvis fan with multiple With multiple sclerosis, who played center for objectively the worst team in college basketball history. That's correct. Yeah, all of that's correct. Oh, that's correct. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, first of all, Nathan is a lovely individual, and he lives with his wife and two sons in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, I just spoke with him recently, uh-huh. and he's, uh, he's, he was one of my best students. He, he contacted me to work on existential depression at Texas A&M, and I said, sure, come on. So he developed a spiritual meaning scale, which uh, is quite a nice scale, actually. You know how you... Of scales like the Beck's depression scale and things. This is the Mascaro's spiritual meaning scale. Mm-hmm. And he uses that in his practice? He does, yeah. And he gives workshops and different things. So people can contact him if they want. He's at a VA hospital in Atlanta. Dr. Robert Romanetian at Pacifica said that David Rosen is beyond what he has done, a man who has truly transformed his depression through a creative life. And that seems to be a theme throughout your work is transforming depression. I mean, hence the title of your book. But would you tell us, yeah, how that has informed pretty much your entire body of work? Yeah, I... I view depression as positive, which I remember the faculty in psychology at Texas A&M didn't like that. They didn't understand that. Right. But that's the way I view it, because uh, you can learn a lot from your depression. And I would tell them they would use William James's psychology textbook, but they never read the varieties of religious experience. Mm -hmm which is the book that I liked the most. Mm-hmm. And and when he was graduating from medical school, he was in bed thinking about killing himself. Mm-hmm. So he, he knew about depression. And, and uh, I, so I felt he was like a relative or something. 
Mm. You identified with him. And so mm. where did you get this notion that there could be something positive in one's depression? Where did that come from in you? Well, I don't really know, except uh, it's, it is personal. And I, uh, I just, in my own depression, I, I would uh, accept it and I use the energy of it. Instead of going down and withdrawing, I use it to create. And all the patients I see, I say, well, you have to create something. Then they get real nervous. Mm-hmm. But, for example, I remember this one patient said, I can't create anything. I said, sure you can. What have you always wanted to do? Mm-hmm. What do you do secretly? That's great. And he said, I write poetry. And I said, well, bring it in and read it. And he says, really? And I said, yeah. So he read this poem when he came in and and I said, you should send it to the New Yorker. That's worthy of publication. Mm. He never did. He's very leery to do that. Mm. But he had someone to hear it. And he did own it that he was a poet eventually mm. in his own personal way. And that was a huge uh, accomplishment in and of itself. So I, I just had this this question kind of bubble up. So if creative acts can help one out of their depression. What does that say about the origin of the depression? It's probably connected to the creative center in the brain. So, because I've always wondered, well, what what's at the root of this depression? I mean, in mm-hmm. our society, therapists, psychiatrists want usually want to medicate people out of their depression and that never yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It, it no i'm saying it it never gets to the bottom of the depression where did no. the depression come from why is it here right what's it asking right. of you mm-hmm. yeah i don't medicate the depression away and i tell people that if they want to understand what it means then come and see me if you don't, don't. And I asked him to read the Transforming Depression before, and if that rings a bell, because we're going to do dreams. and You can see four cases where it helped people get out of their depression. Mm-hmm. So I read someplace where you read Jung's Memories, Dreams, Reflections when you were 19 mm-hmm. years old. How did you come across mm-hmm. that book? It had just been published. Uh, I was at UC Berkeley, mm-hmm. and the book had just been published. And I, I like to read, and and I remember in psychology, hardly any of it made any sense to me except the Jungian psychology. Yeah. So I thought, oh, I'll read that book. So I did, and that was what precipitated my further interest. You chose to pursue uh, medical school instead of, say, the field of psychology. Um, but did, did you go into medical school wanting to become a psychiatrist? Yes. Yeah. And I told, I told him that at the interview. I said, I'm not here to become a 
general practitioner or internist. I'm here to become a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of knowing the body because almost every illness has a psychological or psychiatric component. Mm-hmm. And the same psychiatric illnesses, they have physical problems. So I thought it would be a good idea to uh, study the body, just like Plato said. That's important. All parts of it interrelate. And so that's why I did that. And I did apply to psychology programs at the same time and got accepted at some, but uh, turned them down and went into medicine because I thought I could do more through medicine because I could learn more. Mm-hmm. So then when George Engel, the, the famous psychiatrist George Engel, recruited you, um, were mm-hmm. you, did you work with his psychosomatic theories? Were you doing research with him? I, I did all of that when I was there at mm-hmm. Rochester, and I really liked he He had a staff that were, was all integrated, and everybody was the same, the nurse, the psychologist, the minister, they all were given equal weight. So I, I liked that. And I thought every illness deserves that uh, multiplicity of views and understanding. Mm-hmm. And we go on round with all those people. Yeah, would you say a little bit more about the work you did with him and maybe why you you were with, you were there for four years and what, mm-hmm. what prompted you to move on from that? Um. I enjoyed the work very much there, and I probably would have stayed there. He wanted me to stay there, mm-hmm. but I got a offer from Texas A&M, which I thought was kind of strange. I thought Texas was just a home of barbaric people, and I didn't want to go there. And, oh. and yeah. George Jingle said, no, you should, you should check it out. And I said, why? And he said, because an endowed professorship will allow you to do your own research mm-hmm. and go to conferences anywhere you want. So I went there, and, and I liked liked the, the idea of that. And, and being the first of something made sense to me. And so it all worked out well. And I, I started the Fay lectures there and the books. And uh, that wouldn't have happened without that kind of intellectual freedom and the financial support. Mm-hmm. And how did you meet Frank McMillan Jr.? Um, Frank McMillan Sr., his father, came to the Young Center when I was given a talk there once and uh, in Houston. In fact, he came to College Station to go to a local Brazos Valley. That's what the Valley was called where we lived, and Union Society gave a talk there, and he he came, and he said, well, let me drive you down to Houston, and I said, okay, so he came to that meeting also, so we got to know each other that way, and he was a rancher, and he wore ranch clothes, like, he'd take me to dinner in this fancy Texas hotel, and he'd wear these ranch clothes and sit there. Uh, just the way he was and uh, in the petroleum club and all that stuff in Houston and uh, he'd always come in his ranch clothes plus he had a from a, 
I don't know what the illness was. He had an eye patch on also, so he looked really unusual. Mm-hmm. But a kind, very kind person like Frank, his son. So you're talking about Frank McMillan Jr., the subject of the book Finding Jung, which was the subject of episode 91 of this podcast, where I interviewed Frank McMillan Jr.'s son, Frank McMillan III. So you knew yes. you knew Frank's father, who the book is about. Yes. He endowed the professorship at Texas A&M University. Yes. And he did it in analytical psychology, mm-hmm. Jungian psychology, which is very unusual. And I said, on that ride that we were on, I said, well, did you have Jungian analysis? Why did you do that? And he said, no, I just would read Jung and analyze myself. I never went to see anybody, but I, I call him the old man. And he sent his when he wrote his books, I'd read them and apply them to myself. Mm. And it all worked out. And so what Frank was doing was self-analysis, which you can do, but it's difficult. It is quite difficult, yes. And I was wondering, when you were a professor there at Texas A&M, you were teaching analytical psychology to undergraduates? Yes, I, I developed, I, because of the endowment, I could do whatever I want. So mm-hmm. I developed whatever I wanted to do. So I developed an undergraduate course, which was very popular with students. And I think it was tested by the faculty because it was popular. And I developed a graduate program class for graduate students. And that was popular, which I think upset the faculty also. And I developed my own students because people would apply like um Mascaro, Nathan Mascaro, and I would accept him. So I had my own group of PhD students, but I never had a PhD. I didn't have one. And so they said, well, you'll learn. And so I learned. You mentioned that that it wasn't well-liked. Why do you think that was? I think that psychology is very, um, like it probably was in Freud's time, very mechanistic mechanistic, simplistic, and easy to understand and master. So when you put in there that maybe you don't understand that, and maybe the dream means something else, they they get real antsy and start squirming and they don't like that. Yes, I've noticed that myself. Yep. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So you had a lot of students, uh, and you taught there for many years. And when the Fay mm-hmm. Lecture Series started, uh, mm-hmm. it started at the Young Center in Houston, right? The Fay Lecture Series, or did it start there at Texas A&M? It was always at Texas A&M, but the, they had an introduction at the Young Center in Houston. So the prologues or the uh, forwards, preface to the books, are, are their talks that the Houston Young Center, and then later it moved there after I left. After you left, and and on the next episode of this podcast, uh, my guest will be this year's Fay lecturer, Nancy Forlotti. And so she'll tell us all about uh, what's happening with the lectures this year in, in November. <clears throat> One of the many books you've written is titled The Tao of Jung, and 
you actually went to Zurich for a period of, I think, seven months to write that book. Mm -hmm. And it is the book that I would like to feature on this episode. Uh, The publisher will be giving away a copy. We give away a book every Friday on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So if you follow me mm-hmm. at Jungian Laura, you can enter to win a copy of the Tao of Jung, Friday, October 1st. We will be giving away a copy of the Tao of Jung by Dr. Rosen. And that book is packed with so much wonderful material. And I have some personal stories about it, some personal associations with it. But I would like to ask you... In the acknowledgments, mm-hmm. you thank Jung's son Franz and his son Peter, mm-hmm. and I was wondering what your relationship was with them. Well, when I went to the to Jung's house, um, his son was living there then, Franz, and uh, he was very kind and and I wanted to go to Bulligan, and I knew that he was the person he had to talk to to get there. Mm-hmm. So he said, no, my son, will, my son will do that, Peter. And so uh, Peter took me to Bulagan, and, and I spent time there, and that's in that book, The Tao of Young, mm-hmm. my experience with him. And when he first met me, he said, I, I have to tell you right away, I'm not an analyst. And I said, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. He said, but I am a psychiatrist. And I said, well, I'm a psychiatrist and an analyst, so it doesn't really matter. (laughs) (laughs) And there are lots of photos in the book. And yeah, and the premise of the book is that you say, I noticed that Jung himself from a very early age was Taoist in his approach to life. So that's the idea that you went in there with. And then you yes. you met up with Marie-Louise von Franz and C.A. Meyer, and yes. they both confirmed your suspicions. Tell us about that. Well, when I asked, when I met with each one of them, that was a question I wanted to ask them. And C.A. Meyer was a quite elderly man. Um, he seemed uh, very patriarchal. And of course, Jung always said a I don't know what you call it, an oppositional tack toward him. Uh, a very bright person. Did some really nice books. Uh, but it was, in Marie-Louise von Franz was the opposite. She was a devotee of Jung. And um, she was quite elderly also. I think she had Parkinson's or something. Mm-hmm. A nurse was there the whole time. I think she'd been in the military. There was a nurse there from the military, I believe. Mm-hmm. She was very, very kind. And, uh, and I asked both of them if Jung was Taoist at an appropriate moment, and they said yes. They both knew Taoism, and they uh, they confirmed that. So that's where the title came from. Mm-hmm. I had that idea, and then I confirmed it with him. So for the listeners who might not be familiar with Taoism, what is it? Taoism, um, it's a, I think it's sort of like Jung psychology, where the Tao would be like the self, the capital S self. 
in Jung psychology. And uh, so it's uh, the Tao is everywhere, and it manifests through the individual as the duh, the te. So um, each person expresses the Tao that way. So Jung is, expresses it his way, and I express it mine, and you express it your way. Mm-hmm. So, but we all have the Tao, and we all come from that. It's sort of like God. Or, I remember in the, when I was in the Tao of Elvis, I was talking to his spiritual advisor, and I said, well, what did Elvis think about Taoism? And he said, oh, he thought the Tao was God. And I said, yeah, it seemed like that's the right, right answer. And people are shocked to find out that Elvis was spiritual. Yes, and so your book, The Tao of Elvis, is mm-hmm. is not a joke. It's not a comedic book. It is serious. And no. by the way, it is beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I think so. I think it turned out beautiful. So before we get to Elvis, I'd like to say yeah. something <laughs> something else about okay. the Tao of Jung. Um Sure. Just a personal note. So I had kind of forgotten this because it was so long ago when I found that book. I barely mm-hmm. remember. It must have been at the library because that's where I got Transforming Depression very early yeah. on in my analysis in the 1990s. But I had a quote by Jung and I never knew where it was from. And I had asked an analyst about it on one of the earlier episodes of this podcast, and they weren't Mm -hmm. familiar with it and just kind of dismissed it. But, Mm -hmm. and I never, I never found it. And today I searched the collected works (laughs) and there it was, but it's in, it's in the Tao of Jung and it's in the preface. And so I know now that's where I originally saw that quote. So in the preface, you quote Jung, and and I want to thank you for this because I must have seen it 25, 30 years ago, yeah. and it has it's been with me ever since. It's mm-hmm. from C.G. Jung Letters, Volume 1. It's on page mm-hmm. 559. It's mm-hmm. in a letter from Jung to Dr. N, dated 10th of June, 1950. And Jung mm-hmm. said... You get nowhere with theories. Try to be simple and always take the next step. You needn't see it Mm -hmm. in advance, but you can look back Mm -hmm. at it afterwards. There is no Mm -hmm. how of life. One just does it, as you wrote your letter, for instance. It seems, however, Mm -hmm. to be terribly difficult for you not to be complicated and to do what is simple and Mm -hmm. closest to hand. You barricade yourself Mm -hmm. from the world with exaggerated savior fantasies. So here's the part. (laughs) Jung said, so climb down from the mountain of your humility and follow your nose. That is your way and the straightest. Right. So tell us why you included that quote in the preface to the book. Well, that's, you asked what Taoism is. That's what it is. Follow your nose. Just be yourself. Notice everything. Take your time. Walk slowly. And uh, you'll be fine. Interact with people. Take in the landscape, the people. Share yourself. Create new things. It's very like childlike. Ch- children would have no 
problem of the Tao. That's why there are those nice books, the Tao of Pooh and the Duh of Pooh. You know those books? The, yeah. The, the, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's why they're the, those are there. Children love them. Another very important quote in the book is, I have to bring this up, Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a quote by Jung that has been distorted and that distortion has been repeated. It's found very widely on the internet and it's even included in some books by Jungian analysts that I've had on this podcast. When we tried to track down the source of the quote and couldn't, someone found it. I won't repeat the distorted version. I'll just read the real quote which you use to introduce chapter one, sunrise to the eve of pubescence, becoming a separate individual. Jung said, it is not I who create myself, rather I happen to myself. And the source for everyone is the essay, Transformation Symbolism in the Mass, in volume 11 of the collected works, Psychology and Religion, West and East. It is in paragraph 391. Well, again, it's a very Taoist statement. You ask what the Tao is, that's a good example of it in that quote. It is not I who create myself, rather I happen to myself. Yes, you're just accepting yourself. And that's really the goal of Jung psychology and Maslow's psychology and a lot of psychology mm-hmm. and Buddhism and so on. So... Uh, Accept yourself and realize your potential and then act on it. That's what's hard for people to do, to realize that their dreams can come true and just act on them like you you do, uh, Laura, with your show and everything. Yep. Follow your nose. That is your way. Exactly. So tell us about the Tao of Elvis. Is it like the Tao of Jung? Only in that I thought both of them lived by the Tao. They they let the Tao go through them. And I had never thought that that would apply to Elvis, but I read so much about him, testimonials and people who knew him well and stuff that he wrote, how he was captured by other people. And I remember one thing someone said was everywhere he went, he had a, stack of books, and he would read the Tao Te Ching and other other books of religious originals. And that struck me as really not known by the public, that uh, they think of him as a... uh, And when I had this, I had a group helping me with this research at Texas A&M, and the faculty would make jokes about it, and I would say I'm working on the Tao of Elvis, and they would crack up. But there was an article that in the uh, that I think what it was called the I think it was a news item of higher education, and they had a little blurb in there about our study and said it was good that you could understand Elvis. And I said anybody can understand any, anybody, and uh, Elvis represents America, mm. so it's fine to study him. And why do Americans like him? Because they like themselves. Mm. And they like their spiritual quality, which 
people don't know that he had. And uh, he was very spiritual person and very giving person. I remember when I interviewed, he <clears throat> went to the home of his dentist in Memphis. And the dentist said, well, I used to have to go to see him and work on him at Graceland because he couldn't come to my office because he'd be mobbed. So I'd go there and he would tell me stories about him. And then he said, and let me show you something before you leave. And he opened the garage door from inside and he says, see that Cadillac there? We've never driven it, but Elvis gave it to me one day for my wife mm. who taught him yoga. She was a yoga teacher. And she taught him yoga, and he had a meditation garden that you probably saw up there. So people don't know those things. Well, they do now. When I went to Graceland the first time, I went in the first room, and it's the living room, and there's a coffee table. And on the coffee table was a Buddha. And I thought, what is that doing there? So it fits in with his interest in all religions that I later discovered. Do you think that people's obsession with Elvis or their standing him, their worshiping him, because they have an inner Elvis? I think they have misguided... Uh, their own spiritual uh, interests onto him. Mm -hmm. And I think Elvis would have thought that also. He would have thought it was nuts. He would have thought it was nuts, yeah. I think so. One time there's in that book of research, he's at SM concert and all these people are coming to it. And he said, why are, he looked out there and he said, why are those people coming to see me? They just need to look in the mirror. Mm. So he knew. He knew, yeah. He knew. But, but he didn't, uh, I wish he would have seen a Jungian analyst because he obviously had trouble and all the fame like it does with a lot of people that are famous and kills them. Why is that? I, that's been a, a big interest of mine because I, throughout my life, I've known a lot of people before they became famous and then right. I watched them change when they became famous right. and it's usually the same story. Right. It's, I think it would be very difficult to be yourself and not go down the famous road. And some people do that. I think Sting did that. He doesn't seem to, to uh, just be famous. He just, he's just himself. So I think you can do it, but a lot of people are unable to do it. They're seduced by the fame, I guess, the ego inflation. Do you think that it also has something to do with the people around you? Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Elvis's uh, group around him, they called him the Memphis Mafia. And I think they, they would have killed him. And people wrote about that. I mean, I think he, they got his uh, drugs for him. And, and uh, so they were facilitating his demise and benefiting from it. Mm. And I think that does happen a lot with famous people. Mm -hmm. And in your book, Transforming Depression, you mm. compare and contrast Betty Ford and Elvis Presley. 
when you're writing about your concept of ego side. And I was wondering if you would tell the listeners a little bit about that. Okay. Well, Betty Ford, and I don't, I don't know if the listeners remember, but that was Gerald Ford's wife who was an alcoholic and uh, treated, got treatment and later opened the Betty Ford Treatment Centers where Elvis and other people could have gone. But she dealt with her problems, and I call that the ego side. So that part of her ego that had to die did and went into the creative um, practices that she set up and treatments, whereas Elvis, unfortunately, was not able to uh, let that part of his ego die and, and commit ego side. I think they got, he got to, they got too connected and disconnected with Betty Ford and connected with Elvis. So that was a tragedy. Did Betty Ford do what she did consciously? Did she realize what she was doing as far as the, the ego side that she experienced? I would, I would think so. I never talked to her, but I would imagine from her behavior, um, what she did, I think she had choices. People can, it's like AA. Why do people go to AA? And I think they do that to stop drinking and to be held accountable for it. So I think that's what she was doing. And Elvis never never did that. Mm -hmm. So would you explain more about your concept of ego side? Because it is another thing that I found very early on in your book, Transforming Depression. I talked about this on the episode with Frank McMillan, where mm -hmm. I found your book very early on in my analysis. And I was not I, I wasn't, I was not severely depressed and I was in no way suicidal, mm -hmm. but something about right. reading that really spoke to me about how there's a part of you that needs to die. Yes. And just reading about how people who you, you, you interviewed people who attempted suicide and they were failed suicides. Well, obviously, cause they were still there yeah. and right. <laughs> so would you tell us about that, about your your research on uh, suicide attempts? Well, what struck me reading the newspapers when I was in San Francisco, they put on the front page of someone survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. And so I would read on the pages inside and the back page where they put this stuff about what these individuals were going through. And I read that each one of them had a religious experience when they jumped. So I thought, wow, uh, maybe you could incorporate that into treatment. And it fit with Jung's uh, analytic treatment. So that's where, that, that's where they come together. And so the people that survived the suicide attempt that you interviewed, none of them went on to later commit suicide their lives were truly transformed by the yes. experience yes and so that uh, hit home to me that this was important if i could develop a theory in treatment that was like that in the office then uh, that, and that's what i attempted to do so the person who came in to see me would know that that part of them 
that wants to kill themselves would have to die. And then they transform that into something creative, which everybody has. Everybody likes that. They, they resist it. Mm-hmm. But everybody, you know, wants to write a song or wants to write a play or wants to write a poem or whatever it is. Or draw a picture, whatever it is. If you'd like to find out more, I have a blog post titled Egocide on speakingofyoung.com where I pull some quotes from Dr. Rosen's book and include the section on... Betty Ford and Elvis Presley, so you can read more about that in the Speaking of Young blog. Well, thank you for doing that. Yeah, thank you for writing it. <laughs> and another way of kind of explaining ego side is you call it a symbolic death. Instead of mm-hmm. a literal death, it's, it's, it's a symbolic death. Well, I was going to mention this minister that was suicidally depressed that came to see me. And he had a dream that, and I'm trying to remember if it's in the book. You can tell me if it is. But he he went up to Seattle in his dream to a higher bridge than the Golden Gate and jumped off the the tower uh, into the water. And he woke up right before he hit the water. That was his dream. And that was his ego son. Because after that, everything was fine. That was his ego side, that dream. Yeah, when he jumped and you know, had a death experience. And he was suffering through, uh, through a lot of um, behavior that would have killed him. And uh, and he stopped after he had that and the analytic treatment. And he changed. And uh, so it was a very encouraging development with him. So I was going to move on to your cookbook, The Alchemy of Cooking. And something interesting that you mention in that book is you mention that sugar is associated with depression and inflammation, which I am a firm believer of that. Because I was reading through some of your recipes and you, you kept mentioning for instance, uh, in the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you said that the jelly, preferably without sugar. And then you mentioned that sugar is associated with depression and inflammation. And I agree with that. I know that when I eat sugar, it makes me tired. It makes me lethargic. And it actually makes my body ache. And there's your inflammation. And so you then go on to point out where Jung was right. Reflect on your best moments, not those painful experiences. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, um, having no sugar happened to me when I went to Texas A&M. The, the psychologist next to my office was a psychologist of sugar. And he told me of depression. He told me sugar caused depression. I said, really? He said, yeah, that's what I study. And so I did my own little experiments and thought, this is actually true, just like you you said. And so since that time, I've never had sugar. Wow. And I found out it also is bad for MS patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually bad for a lot of things. So do you you remember um, his name? Christensen, Larry Christensen. And he went to the University of 
Alabama Mobile, I think. He was a dietary uh, psychologist, which is unusual, but uh, yeah, that's, that's stuck so interesting. With, 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 yeah, when he told me that stuck with me and and made a big difference. Made a big difference. That's great. In my life, other people's lives. Your body of work is huge. And when I was preparing for this episode, I was just getting, I was getting lost because I couldn't move on to the next thing. And I want to mention your talk with Bonnie Bright on her podcast. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes because because it is a wonderful talk and you talk a lot about haiku and poetry which is really not my thing. So I don't think I can really talk to you about that. But uh, for the listeners that are interested in your books on haiku, I'd like to recommend your talk with Bonnie Bright. Yeah, she has a similar kind of radio personality like you do. And, and when she was asking me what I was working on at the time, I said, oh, I finished it and now I'm coloring it while you're talking to me. I, I wrote a coloring book. Yes. And I was coloring it when she was talking to me about it. It's called Time, Love, and Lakers. Yes. Yeah. And I was going to mention that because speaking of food, <laughs> the woman that illustrated several of your books, Diane Katz, who is an, a wonderful yes. artist. She is. She discovered that candy made from real licorice can be used to help heal adrenal exhaustion and stress. Yeah. Yeah, she told she told me that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. And there needs to be a study then to see if that's true. To see if that's true. So why is it titled yeah. Time, Love and Licorice, your coloring book there? Um, it was it started out as uh, a children's book that I wrote called Henry's Tower. And then working with Diane and the illustrations, it changed. And uh, I I just changed the topic mm-hmm. to the time, uh, love and licorice, because the licorice uh, appears in the other book. So it's important uh, that that be there. And she just, she uh, suggested changing it. And I thought it was a good idea. Another thing is Thomas Moore, who I'm sure a lot yeah. of the listeners know, has written the foreword to several of your books. And I was wondering how you knew each other. Um, I met him at the Jung Center in Houston. And uh, he was giving a talk there and, you know, how you con- congregate afterwards. And I mm-hmm. I was left there with him. And so I finally said when everybody left, I said, hey, do you want a whiskey? And he said yes, and so we went across the street to get a whiskey. To and, do a uh, shot of whiskey? Yes. Uh-huh. Which uh, I thought was uh, nice and unusual for someone to be that open. And so that's where the friendship started. And then mm-hmm. I uh, sent him a few things and asked him if he would write a forward to it. And, and his forward to the um, the book, uh, um, the ch- it's a children's book with the... Uh, the Kindergarten Symphony. That one, yeah, that I like a lot, his forward to that. And that book, uh, I, I think it would be good for people's 
kids learning the alphabet, the book. And his uh, words and the pictures of animals is all important. It's interesting that earlier when I mentioned the Jung quote that had been with me for all these years and and not knowing the source, the one where Jung said, follow your nose, that Mm -hmm. is your way. Well, I also, around that same time, had a quote by Thomas More. Uh, I worked at University Hospitals of Cleveland. We had these cubicles that had these walls made out of material and you can use thumbtacks to tack things up. And I had a quote from his book, Care of the Soul, something about Mm -hmm. how your soul's journey might not be one that your ego wants to take a ride on. Well, when I read that, and this was before I got interested in Jung, something about that just really struck me very deeply. That was so helpful to me. And I'll always be grateful to him for that. And I had Mm -hmm. that quote up on my wall. And so that was my introduction to Thomas More. So as we come to the end of our time here, I'm just scrolling through here and wondering if there's anything else you would like to share with our listeners. Well, um, you brought up Thomas More. I mean, people know that he was supposed to be a priest. His family wanted him to be a priest. So he went to a seminary. But he didn't like it, and he left, and he became his own person again, that following your nose, mm-hmm. being yourself, which I'm glad he he did. And uh, glad you said that, because it's true. I just appreciate your uh, reading everything, and you're a very good interviewer. Thank you for all this wonderful material. Uh, in preparing for this episode, I feel like I barely made a dent in covering and going through all of your books. And I found your website on the Texas A&M University, uh, your page on their website, and I will provide a link to that in the show notes. It is very thorough. You list your entire CV, all of your publications, not just your books, but your articles, your research. There are photos of you and your family, your artwork. Mm all on your website, which is a wonderful resource. And I'd like to remind the listeners that your publisher, Wiffenstock, there in Eugene, Oregon, is providing a coupon code for 40% off. They have 22 of your titles. They'll give you 40% off if you enter the coupon code ROSEN at checkout. You can go to wiffenstock.com or you could go to speakingofyoung.com where I will have links to Every single one of Dr. Rosen's books will be in the show notes. One thing is important. I have two other publishers, not just Whippenstock. I like them a lot. Most of my books are with them. But I have a patient-centered medicine, the human experience with Oxford University Press, which came out in 2017 with a former student, Nguyen Wong, a Vietnamese-American student. And uh, I have another little publisher um, that uh, published a book, I think it's back in 2013, called Clouds and More Clouds. It's by Lily Poole Press, which nobody's ever heard of probably, but it's a nice little press in Massachusetts. What is Clouds and More Clouds about? 
There is a, a review of it. I once found it looking online, so you might be able to find it. Okay. It's a nice review of the, of the book. It's a, the, it's a book of poetry, and uh, um, like any book of poetry, it uh, may or may not speak to you, but I hope it does. Okay, great. I will find that and put a link to that in the show notes as well. Okay, good. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you for everything. Please visit the website, speakingofyoung, that's J-U-N-G, dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or download for free. This episode is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian and Laura. You can also listen to this podcast on your Amazon Echo device, simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. Links to Amazon's new Echo devices can be found in the show notes. With special thanks to James Stock and Shanna Lee Forrest at Whiff and Stock Publishers, and to Frank N. McMillan III, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Young. <laughs>